Well, please turn with me to our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 16. Just want to note for you, we will be reading verses 1 through 16. Note that verse 13 is the verse that Jesus will quote for us in our sermon text from Matthew chapter 15. So we'll read 1 through 16 to provide us with some context. Note especially verse 13, which will be quoted by Christ. Our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 16. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like in Ariel, and I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will rage, raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating and awakes, with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint, with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to, to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men therefore behold I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish 
and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me to our New Testament lesson and sermon text, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. And as we do that, I expect that the context of Isaiah 29 made clear, but just let me make sure that Ariel, who is being denounced, was the city Jerusalem, who factors very importantly here within our sermon text. So, let us now hear together Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and... Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, although the 
Westminster Shorter Catechism, as I've mentioned before, is certainly subpar in comparison with our special Heidelberg Catechism. It does have its place every once in a while. The first question of that Shorter Catechism is very famous. It asks this important question, what is the chief end of man? Its answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It speaks of true piety. Our purpose, our joy are fulfilled only when directed toward God and His glory. Now, our modern therapeutic age would answer that question very, very differently. What is the chief end of man? To fulfill my desires and enjoy my true self forever. It would go. Whereas Holy Scripture orients us outward toward God and His authoritative Word, we are tempted to turn inward to follow an internal authority, our own hearts, instead of God's word, to be who we want to be, instead of who God wants us to be. Make no mistake about it. Even though our modern moral crisis is unique in some respects, it is just another rendition of the ancient spiritual battle. Back in the Garden of Eden, the creature sought to usurp the Creator's authority. And this has always been manifest within this fallen world. Creature versus Creator. Our own internal ideas against God's external word. And we see this today within our text clearly manifest. Man-made traditions seeking to usurp the commandment of God. What is within, attacking what comes down from without, out of heaven. But do not think for a second that this is a text and that this is a sermon that a Reformed church with its regulative principle of worship can afford to tune out. No, we cannot. For the Jews themselves, members of the covenants, they knew Scripture better than we do today. But they still ate of that forbidden fruit. And so can we, beloved. We, too, can deceive ourselves, imagining that we are living lives of piety toward God, yet deceiving ourselves and following instead our own whims, desires, and ambitions, rather than the commandment of God. And so today, let us be mindful that our traditions cannot cleanse us. Our works cannot do what only Christ can do. Our traditions cannot cleanse us. Our traditions are not either the standard of piety. Only God can cleanse 
and only God can guide our lives that might be pleasing to Him. May we today be cleansed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We begin with our first point. True piety is scriptural. This is the foundational thing that Christ is teaching in this text. That true piety is biblical piety. Now, if piety sounds like some strange, old-fashioned word to you, let me just clarify. It simply means a life that is pleasing to God. Piety is just summed up by our love for God and living for His glory. To in, uh, in glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism phrases it. Even if it's an old-fashioned term, it's still very, very helpful, this term piety. But the question must be asked, of course, how do we know what is pleasing to God? What does inform and direct our piety? Now, the Pharisees and scribes, they had an answer. They, of course, affirmed that Scripture was one source for true piety, but they looked also to another source, the traditions of the elders. At the time of Christ, these traditions were primarily oral traditions, and there was some diversity to them and how they were regarded. Some Jews would have had an appropriate view of these traditions as wisdom from the past that provides wise guidance for observing the Bible. But many other Jews did not have an appropriate perspective. And these are the ones being addressed by Christ here in our text. To these, certain traditions of the elders had become equivalent to biblical piety. If you didn't perform ceremonial washings of your hands, this was not for uh, cleanliness. They did not know anything about germs and microbes. This is all about a ceremony. If you didn't do the ceremony as the Pharisees taught, then they said you would defile your, your food, and then your food that you ate would defile you. Being occupied by the Romans, you, you must understand, would have been interacting with Gentiles on a regular basis. And so, if you didn't wash your hands, your kosher diet would become like a bacon diet. It would not be clean for you, but rather it would become defiled. So, the understanding went that came from the Pharisees and the scribes. And all this meant that Jesus was a chief transgressor. Why? It wasn't just that he had himself failed to wash his hands. It's that he had a whole bunch of followers, even multitudes that were coming to him for teaching, and he was not upholding the traditional washings. So, 
According to these leaders from Jerusalem, Christ was spreading defilement all across Israel. Perhaps the Pharisees and scribes believed that hand-washing was part of an authoritative oral tradition that came down from Mount Sinai. There were at least some Jews who believed this sort of thing, that Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders did not only come down and bring a written authoritative text, but some believed that they also came down and brought an unwritten, authoritative oral tradition passed down. Now, this is somewhat analogous to how Roman Catholics affirm both a written authority scripture and an unwritten authority within the hierarchy of bishops and especially in the Pope, the papacy. That these are an equal authority, two sources of the Word of God. Some Jews held a view somewhat like that. Or perhaps these Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem consider the practice of hand-washing to be a, quote, fence around the law, but practically exalted that fence to be equivalent with the law. This would be analogous to those Protestants that affirm modesty, which of course we should all affirm, but then dictate exactly what that means. Jean skirts for the girls and dresses that cover your ankles. Or those Anabaptists like the Amish or Mennonites where men and women, to be modest, must wear only certain kinds and colors of clothing. The fence is no longer just the fence around the law. The fence becomes the law. Consider otherwise how some have prohibited dancing. A fence around the law to prevent sexual immorality becomes the law. Many in our day still forbid all alcohol. A fence around the law to prevent drunkenness becomes the law. You see, traditions of men can become equated with the commandment of God, not always in theory, often in practice. So what exactly did these Pharisees and scribes believe? We don't really know. But what we do know, what is clear in this text, is that they had exalted the traditions of man to the level of the commandments of God. And nothing, beloved, nothing should ever be exalted to that level. There is the Creator, and He is transcendent, over the creature. And so, when the Creator speaks and delivers His Word, that Word must then be exalted over every possible Word that can come from the creature. His speech transcends ours. 
Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These things cannot be said about man-made traditions. Only Scripture is breathed out by God. Would you please take with your Psalter hymnal in your hand and turn with me to page 856. I'm going to read to you the first four sections of Article 7 of our Belgic Confession, which captures for us the transcendent value of the inspired Word of God. On page 856, Article 7, the first four little sections there, we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely. In other words, the fence cannot become the law. And that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or to subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor counsel's decrees or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. We have addressed in this first point the foundation of Christ's entire response in these 20 verses. The supreme authority is Holy Scripture. True piety is scriptural. The Pharisees and scribes imagined that their man-made piety was pleasing to God. And this brings us to our second point. Man-made piety stands condemned. Let us note here that Jesus addresses the Pharisees and scribes in two stages in the first nine verses. He begins with something called korban, an example of man-made piety. He uses an example. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah 29. And so let's begin with a practice of korban. Matthew does not use this term, but Mark does. And it was a widely understood practice. This is why Jesus chose 
this as an example of man-made piety. His audience knew exactly what he was talking about. They're very familiar with this. The problem for us is that we struggle to know exactly what they understood about the practice of Korban. Because it was not found in Scripture. This was an oral tradition at the time. The best I can discern about this practice from reading the Mishnah this past week and various scholarly sources is that Korban was a term that refers to a, a shorthand practice of offering something to God. A shorthand way of offering something to God. That could be your money. It could be your food or property. It could even be something like your physical ability to work. If you declared something to be korban, it was immediately by that declaration devoted to God and neither you nor anyone else could use it. On the surface, this man-made piety might seem very innocent. You're offering something to God, after all. Isn't that a really good thing? But practically, this meant you could offer something to God in order to keep it from someone else. Perhaps your neighbor comes over to your house, knocks on your door, and asks you to repay a favor. He wants to paint his shed on this nice Saturday afternoon, and he is asking you to repay a favor and to come and help him. You're quick on your feet, though, aren't you? And you say, my arms are korban to the Lord today. By declaring that your arms are korban in that moment, you have effectively prevented yourself from being able to use your arms even for yourself or for your neighbor. You had to have that bad Saturday of sitting down and watching television. The only problem is you couldn't use your arms to change the channel. This also meant that you could pat your own back, metaphorically, of course, because you can't use your arm, because you were so pious toward God by offering to him your arms for the day. Now, more pertinent to our text, let's imagine Korban within a dysfunctional family. Maybe you really dislike your aged parents, and so when they come to you in order to seek some financial help, you might reply to them, Korban, if I were to give it to you. In other words, it could function like a threat. Anything that I could give to you, I would prefer to offer it to the Lord. That way, neither of us can have it. You see how man-made piety could masquerade as true piety? The aged parents go away empty-handed. Their needs are unmet all under the guise of offering something to the Lord. Something like this happened frequently. Frequently enough that Christ's audience knew exactly what he was talking about. The tradition of Korban was considered piety, 
but it actually undermined the fifth commandment. Our basic principle is this. Man-made piety undermines true piety. Now the second stage in Christ's response is his quote from Isaiah chapter 29. And this is very significant. He quotes from that ancient prophecy and says that its words also apply to those leaders who had come to him from Jerusalem to confront him. What in the world's going on? Understand, it was normal in the first century for a rabbi to quote a single verse, but to be referring to the entire context surrounding that verse. You might think of some lines from a movie that you like, and just by thinking of that line from the movie, all of a sudden, the entire scene becomes very vivid to you. I'm thinking of lines right now in my mind from The Godfather. Just one line, and boom, Michael Corleone is in front of my face. That's the kind of thing that happened when the rabbis would quote a verse. Like, Jesus quotes chapter 29 of Isaiah, verse 13. He's bringing to bear the entire context upon his surroundings. And so, what is Christ saying? Isaiah 29 is a chapter that denounced the holy city, Jerusalem, nicknamed Ariel. Recall that Matthew tells us that this is where the Pharisees and scribes had come from. They were sent from Jerusalem all the way to the north to Galilee where Jesus is in order to confront Jesus. This is Jerusalem and its leadership against Jesus. Because Isaiah 29 was declaring that Jerusalem was under divine judgment, this is what Jesus was hinting at and alluding to. The Lord would gather the nations against Jerusalem and destroy her just like he did of old. Why? Because of verse 13, which Jesus quoted. Jerusalem was still operating as a people that honored only with their lips, but their heart was far from God. They lacked true piety. They worshipped in vain emptiness. Why? They followed the commandments of man. Their piety was a charade to stroke their own egos. And so Jesus was alluding to the fact that Jerusalem was under judgment. It would soon be brought down. Just like the Lord sent Assyria and Babylon long ago, he would send the nations and Israel would come under judgment. You see, when the Lord gives his holy word, it is incumbent upon us to exalt it above every other word and to submit to what it says. But how many of us take it with such importance? How many of us proceed to do supposedly Christian things 
without actually knowing our Bibles very well. Surely, we can look at those around us and see other supposed Christians and point out their faults and places where they aren't doing biblical things, but only man-made traditions. But what about you and what about me? We must be on guard, beloved. God has spoken, and his word this day is more available to you than it has ever been available in all of human history. Without a deep commitment to the teaching of Scripture, we run the risk. Yes, this Reformed Church runs the risk of adopting a version of piety that is man-made. Some man-made versions are very old. The church fathers were not sinless. Some man-made versions are very new. Both evangelicals and Roman Catholics sell all sorts of books that tell you how to please God, but they promote things that are not to be found in the Holy Bible. Beloved, make no mistake about it. Your good intentions are not enough. God has given us his sufficient and authoritative word, and he expects that we will be ruled by it, not by our own hearts, our own ideas, our own imagination. Man-made piety stands condemned, even as Jerusalem and its leaders stood condemned, being on the verge of disaster. Now, as we come to our final point, piety beyond the shadows, I want to remind us of what the original accusation against Jesus was. Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem charged him with promoting defilements because his disciples didn't perform the ceremonial washings of their hands prior to eating. The thinking went like this. By interacting with Gentiles, their hands became unclean. By then touching food that would have otherwise been unclean, their food that would be clean became like bacon to them. And they then would ingest this uncleanness and defile themselves. In response, Jesus denounced man-made piety using the example of Korban and then declared them to be under divine judgments like Jerusalem of old. True piety comes from Holy Scripture. But now, in verses 10 through 20, Jesus returns to hand-washing, and he addresses the crowd and his disciples. He demonstrates another reason why that original charge was completely absurd. True defilements was never about the food you ate. True defilement was never about the food you ate. And I know what your objection will be. But what about the food laws of the Old Covenant? If the Jews ate bacon back then, they were defiled. And I want to say, yes, but. You see, Ever since creation, 
love for God and love for neighbor was the rule of piety. And as Paul writes, God created all food to be received with thanksgiving. But under the old covenant, an extensive system of cleanliness and defilement was added. It was introduced. These were food laws and sacrifices designed to uphold a state of ritual cleanliness. Certain foods were clean, while others were not. And then sacrifices would operate in there to restore things that they got out of whack. But this was added in order to serve a symbolic and didactic purpose. That system of cleanliness and defilement, food laws and sacrifices, was paving the way for Jesus Christ. What Jesus is getting at here in these verses is that food has never had an inherent ability to defile. The Old Covenant introduced a temporary and symbolic system. These food laws were shadows of Jesus Christ, cast by Christ backwards through the ages. Did a Jew become defiled by eating bacon? Yes, but it was not because of the inherent nature of bacon. It was because the Word of God forbade it for a time and for a symbolic purpose. In a similar fashion, you could say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not inherently defiling. It was created good and part of God's very good world. But God appointed that one tree to serve a symbolic and temporary purpose. Its fruit did not defile inherently, but it defiled if you broke the word of God. It was not the food. It was the word attached to the food that set it off limits. Just like the food laws under Moses. And this is why Jesus could declare that foods don't inherently defile. They've never had that inherent ability. They go into the stomach not into the heart and soul. And if food doesn't defile, the reasoning is going here, then eating with unwashed, that is defiled hands, doesn't defile your heart or soul either. In the parallel of this episode in the Gospel of Mark, Mark makes explicit what Matthew leaves implicit. That here, Jesus was declaring all foods to be clean. With his arrival, the church moves beyond the shadows. The old food laws are no longer a part of our piety. They had served their symbolic and temporary purpose. They prepared the way for Jesus. And our piety is always and has always been oriented toward him. Our piety, 
our third point, is now beyond the shadows. And so, let's conclude with this final question. What is it that those food laws and that overarching system of cleanliness and defilement was given to teach us? What was being conveyed with those temporary shadows which find fulfillment in Jesus Christ? Well, on one hand, they were given to convict you and to convict me that you and I cannot cleanse ourselves. Even those simple food laws and those step-by-step sacrificial instructions the Jews didn't keep. And as we read in Acts, it was a yoke that the Jews could never bear. They went down the wrong path. They were disobedient. And what that system was given to teach them was not that they should just try harder. It was given to teach them that they could never do it. Their hearts were defiled. So, that system was meant to teach. For from their hearts emerged unclean thoughts, unclean speech, and unclean actions. And the food couldn't fix that. One function of the food laws, therefore, was to convict us of the uncleanness that lurks within our hearts. But the food laws also prepared us for the solution that we find in Jesus. Those food laws reintroduced a certain idea, a certain notion of food that somehow is connected with life. This originated back in the Garden of Eden, remember. There was a second tree there. Not only one that defiled, but a food that was given sacramentally to convey life, beckoning Adam and woman toward glory, the tree of life. The Mosaic system reintroduced that concept. Food was connected somehow with life and holiness. And so, where are we then led to find this holy food and holy drink? Beloved, we are beyond the shadows. We are led to the person of Jesus Christ, who pronounced that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. We are led to our Savior, who touched the believing leper and cleansed him. We are led from the shadows to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is spiritual food. He is spiritual drink. The cross became for you and for me the tree of life. So do you recognize that you cannot cleanse yourself this day? Do you see defilement in your hearts, emerging in your thoughts 
words, and deeds. Then do not turn to man-made piety. Do not turn back to the shadows of the old covenants and its food laws. Instead, I urge you, feast upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. His shadow was cast into the Old Testament. And we are led from those shadows to His person. So feast by hearing His word and believing. Feast. Feast this day by receiving the bread and wine by faith. And feast not in your mouth. For that does nothing to go into your, into your belly. But feast in your soul as you trust in Christ who is that heavenly bread come down for the life of the world. He alone brings forgiveness. He alone brings cleansing. He alone places us upon the path of true piety where we can finally begin to please God. Hear His Word and be cleansed. Submit to His Word and please Him. Hear Christ and His Word this day, beloved. Amen.